the Terry and Jesse Show. My name is Jesse Romero. I'm the Latin lover of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Latin lover of Our Lady. This is the UFC, Ultimate Faithful Catholics. Uh, this is also the MMA, Mother Mary's Army. I'm your spiritual fitness trainer. My partner, Terry Barber, is doing, uh, doing the Lord's work. He's always uh, doing apostolic work. The guy never stops <coughs> working for the kingdom. Got a great show for you. In uh, segment number two and three, we're going to have Dr. Stephen Weidenkopp. He's a professor at Christendom College. He just came out with a new book. It's called Light from Darkness. Nine times the Catholic Church was in turmoil and came out stronger than before. I have a whole bunch of questions to ask him in light of things that are happening right now in the church and in our country with a church historian. So that's going to be something you said you definitely don't want to miss. Uh, just a reminder, we're still in the month of November. The entire month of November is dedicated to praying for the suffering faithful in purgatory. Uh, the church has dedicated the month of November to the holy souls. And the holy souls are those who have died in the state of grace, but who are yet not free from all the punishment due to their unforgiven venial sins and uh, all the other sins, the mortal sins already forgiven for which satisfaction still has to be made. We know that they're going to go to heaven, but they must suffer in purgatory first. And the holy souls cannot help themselves because for them the night has come. Uh, as the Bible says in John chapter 9 verse 4, when no man can work. So it's our great privilege as part of the church militant, as part of the brotherhood, that we can shorten their time of separation from God by our prayers, our good works, and especially the holy sacrifice of the mass. Let me go and give you some, uh, let's go on to our soul food section. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The word gospel, think about this G-O-S-P-E-L. The word gospel means good news. That's what it literally means in the biblical languages in Greek. Good news. Gospel. A way to remember the gospel, uh, to, to remember the story of the gospel. If somebody ever, if a Martian ever came down from the moon and said, Hey, homo sapien, human being, what is the gospel? I've been hearing about the gospel out in Saturn, out in Mars, and in Pluto uh, homo sapien, what is the gospel? Here's what you would say. Instead of saying humana, 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 humana. G-O-S-P-E-L. G-O-S-P-L. Here it is. God's only son. Did you catch that? God's only son. Um, or, or gospel. Go out, share, preach, evangelize, love. That's what you do with the gospel. But what is the gospel? God's only son provides eternal life. G-O-S-P-E-L. So what is the gospel? G-O-S-P-E-L. God's only son provides eternal life. How do you share the gospel? Go out, share, preach, evangelize, and love. Gospel, it means good news. Okay, let's uh, go right into our soul food session. Today's holy gospel according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. Today at Holy Mass, we heard, While some people were speaking about how the temple was adorned with costly stones and votive offerings, Jesus said, All that you see here, the days will come when there will, be not one, there will not be left a stone upon another stone that will not be thrown down. Then they asked him, Teacher, when will these things happen? And what sign will there be that, that all these things are about to happen? He answered, See that you not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time has come. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and insurrections, 
Do not be terrified, for such things must happen first, but it will not immediately be the end. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be powerful earthquakes, famines, and plagues from place to place, and awesome sights and mighty signs will come from the sky. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. That's taken from today's holy gospel, Luke chapter 21, verses 5 to 11. Here's two things that jump out at me. When our, when our Lord is talking about these, uh, these stones, these, uh, in, in verse 5, uh, these, uh, uh, these noble stones of the temple that were adorned with offerings, what's that a reference to? Herod the Great began to renovate and expand the Jerusalem temple around 19 B.C., uh, because the, the structure had been destroyed by the Greeks. And the structure was, it was an immense structure. Many of the stones measured nearly 40 feet in length. Think about that. Many of these stones were 40 feet in length. So the temple looked from an earthly appearance as if it was indestructible. But according to our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, no, that's only an illusion. This temple is destructible. Also, our Lord talks about in verse 12, no, in verse 8, He says, many will come. Many will come even in my name. Yeah, there was people back in the first century in Palestine that uh, actually claimed to be Jesus Christ. And there was a lot of people back in the time of Christ that kind of experienced a surge of messianic fervor. They, they knew that Christ was supposed to come in their lifetime based on the tradition but many of the Jews, they were looking for a military Messiah. They were looking for a political Messiah that would lead Israel to overthrow the Romans. And so this is why they missed the trees for the forest. They couldn't see who Jesus Christ was because they didn't realize that the Messiah's first coming was to die as the Lamb of God, the suffering Savior for the sins of the world. And we also see at the end of today's gospel that many things will happen before the end, the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem. Because what Jesus Christ is talking about there in context is the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem in 70 AD by the Roman legions, which basically closes the Old Testament. The Old Testament is now abrogated. The Old Testament is now repealed. It's no longer, it's no longer uh, the eternal covenant with God. And so, with the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem that Jesus Christ predicted, now that ushers in the new covenant. That ushers in the New Testament. The life of Christ and His death and His resurrection. And He said that a lot of things had to happen before the first coming, before the uh, first destruction of the temple. Wars, earthquakes, kingdoms against kingdoms, uh, insurrections, famines, plagues. Mighty signs from the sky. The, second, the same thing will happen at the second coming of Christ before the destruction of the world. All these same things will happen before the world comes to an end. And in fact, there's, there will be also many mighty signs from the sky as well. St. Faustina talks about the, the sign or the warning that will happen before the second coming of Christ, uh, which, will bring, which will hopefully bring a lot of people to repentance. Well, today's saint of the day who's very popular because of a movie that was made a couple of years ago called For Greater Glory, St. Miguel Pro, Father Miguel Pro, he was a Jesuit. 
He was one of the <clears throat> good Jesuits. And Padre Miguel Pro, what do we know about him? Well, he was a native of Guadalupe, Zacatecas, Mexico. Uh, young Miguel joined the Jesuits in 1911. After he studied abroad, he was ordained and he returned to Mexico in 1926. But there was violent persecutions of the church when he returned. And so his bishop told him and all the other priests to leave. One of the things that young Father Miguel Pro he suffered from was chronic stomach pain. And he also had this uh, the constant threat of capture to hear confessions, give communion, and serve disenfranchised families, always with his characteristic. He was always he was a joker. He always had this just levity in his voice. And uh, Father Miguel Pro was known to say, I can see God's hand so palpably in everything that almost almost I fear they won't kill me in these adventures he wrote at the time when he was basically a wanton man. Padre Miguel Pro went undercover and continued dispensing the sacraments of the church because he understood that they were essential. Unlike some, some of the prelates today that for a time they, they didn't believe it was essential. Father Miguel Pro has always believed the sacraments are essential. So he dressed like a postman. He dressed like a truck driver. He's dressed like a taxi cab driver so that he can navigate around the city and he can uh, continue dispensing the sacraments of God, the holy sacraments of God to God's people. But uh, Father Miguel Pro was eventually arrested on a baseless charge. They, they uh, accused him, the government accused him, the deep state in Mexico, the oligarchs in Mexico, they accused Padre Miguel Pro of masterminding a bombing plot against a politician. And so he was arrested and he was executed on November 23, 1927. It kind of worked against the, the Mexican government because they allowed pictures to be taken and the reason they allowed pictures to be taken is because they wanted to scare all the Mexicans by taking photos of a priest that was executed by a firing squad. But it actually worked against them because hundreds of thousands of Mexican Catholics took to the streets and immediately were calling him a saint and immediately knew that he was a martyr and that he was, uh, that he was in heaven and that he was a saint based on his heroic virtue. And this basically galvanized the Mexican people. There's a good movie if you want to watch this. It's called... Uh, for greater glory, for greater glory, it's got a lot of good Mexican actors there. You can watch it on video. I'm sure you can watch it on some of the uh, on, on some of the internet channels, some of the online internet channels. But it's it. This movie's so relevant, and I'll tell you why. Because right now, we're living in a time um, much like a hundred years ago, the Mexican Catholics lived, where socialism infiltrated and and encircled the entire country. We're seeing the same thing here in America. We're dealing with socialism right now, and uh, we need a new Canisteo movement. Up next, interview with Professor Steve Weidenkamp from Christendom College. I got a lot of good questions to ask him. Stick around. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now, here's Terry and Jesse. Get holy or die trying. That's our motto here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. This is Blue Collar Catholic Radio. 
We have a guest that I've been wanting to get on for a long time. His name is Steve Weidenkopf. He's a, a professor at Christendom College. He's written many books, many books, too numerous to count right now. Let me just give a little bio of, of the professor, and uh, we'll get right to it because I have a lot of questions to ask him. He just came out with the latest book, which I think it's providential because I want to ask him a lot of questions as a result of what we're seeing in the country and in the church right now. The book is called Darkness Has Not Overcome the Church. Uh, New Catholic History Book reminds us that God brings good even out of major crises. Uh, Stephen uh, Weidenkampf is a church historian, and he's known for his historical defenses of the Catholic faith. Uh, he's got a popular book where he answers all the anti-Catholic myths and all the revisionist history about the Crusades and the Reformation. So he's a real Catholic defender of the faith, and uh, we're just glad to have him here on the show. Steve, welcome to the Terry and Jesse Show, my friend. Hey, Jesse, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, you've, you've written a whole lot of books in defense of Holy Mother Church. I just want to applaud you, and I want to just thank you for coming on the show. And this, this latest book couldn't come at a better time because there's a lot of Catholics that uh, they have uh, anxiety. They, they, a lot of Catholics are depressed. A lot of Catholics are, you know, their knees are knocking, they're biting their fingernails. And you've written a book to calm everybody's fears and so let's jump right into it. Uh, Steve, why did you write this book? Yeah, Jesse, you know, you kind of hit uh, a little bit right there in, in the answer or the question you asked me, right, as to why I wrote the book. It's because, you know, a lot of people are very uh, anxious right now about the current state of things in the church, as well as things, you know, the current state of play in the world, if you will. And so as I was going around the last several years, giving various presentations and teaching on church history, I would invariably get asked the question, you know, is this the worst time ever in church history? Are we living in the worst time? And uh, at first, I was taken a bit aback by that question uh, because, you know, being steeped in church history, you know, teaching church history, I thought to myself, well, well, no, I mean, this is far from the worst times we've had in church history, just, you know, in terms of some scandals we've had throughout the clergy, problems in the papacy, all kinds of secular and you know, political attack on the church. And so I thought, well, no, that's it's not the worst time. But why are people asking me this question? I mean, it could be just maybe people don't know church history, which is true. And that's not a criticism. It's just, you know, it, it's a fact. And many people just don't know our church history. So that's one issue. But then I thought to myself, there's something deeper. And maybe maybe there's the reason why people are asking this question is because our modern society really focuses us in the present, right? We're, we're, con we're conditioned to kind of think that everything that's happening to us now is the worst thing ever. Um, you know, it's like every story that comes on CNN or any kind of, you know, secular media or whatever, it's, it's constant 24 hours, seven days a week, focusing on that one story. Uh, and we, we just get bombarded constantly with this message that crisis, 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 crisis. And so I think we have a lack of historical perspective, frankly. Uh, so I wanted to write the book to help provide knowledge to Catholics to know that, you know, there have been darker times in church in the church's past. That's not at all to say that what we're going through now is an issue or aren't issues or aren't problems, that there definitely are issues and problems. Um, but it's, it's to also provide a greater sense of perspective uh, and to hopefully lessen people's anxiety about the current state of, of things in the church okay steve let me ask you a two-part question and this one's going to be kind of long but it's okay because you're a professor so you're used to you're used to being long-winded okay that's part of your sure. <laughs> that, that that's part of your dna so in, in your book i guess you share that there's nine historical uh 
vignettes of church history where there was turmoil. Give us a quick, a quick, uh, you know, snapshot of these nine vignettes of church history. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the book is linear, right? So I start in the early church and walk all the way up to the modern day. So the, the nine times that, that the church has undergone great crisis that I cover in the book, which are times of darkness, which I argue in the book leads to times of great uh, renewal and restoration and reform in the church. So times of light, if you will, um, you know, briefly starts in the early church with the question of the lapsy. What do we do with people who have who apostatized during the Roman persecutions, but now want to be readmitted to the church? So I look at that question. I look at the time of what I call the puppet papacy. This is the ninth and 10th centuries when the papacy really was a plaything of secular uh, rulers, most especially Italian secular rulers. And there were some really horrible immoral popes that, that uh, were brought up to the chair of Peter during that time. Then I look at the mid 11th century where there was a time of great clerical corruption, financial corruption, the buying and selling of spiritual things in church offices known as simony. There was widespread rampant clerical sexual morality morality, priests living openly with women and fathering children, rampant homosexuality in monasteries throughout Christendom. I look at what's known as the investiture controversy, which is towards the end of the 11th century when you have secular rulers, in particular the king of the Germans, trying to control the church and control uh, you know, bishops and the problems that causes for the papacy. I look at the Albigensian heresy at the end of the 12th into the early 13th century, that, that this horrible pernicious heresy that spread through the south of France and and really caused a significant problem for the church, frankly. Uh, and then I look at the Avignon and Great Western Schism, the, the problem and crisis of the papacy in the 14th century when the popes were actually living in the south of France in Avignon, not in uh, Rome itself. Then when they come back from Avignon in, into Rome, then there's the time period where we have not one, but two, and it, later on, three men claiming to be pope all at the same time. Uh, so that we have that scandal and that crisis that leads into the 15th century, mid-15th century Renaissance papacy when you have popes who are living more like secular princes than universal shepherds and you have massive corruption and immorality ongoing in the papacy and throughout Christendom at that time as well. That leads to the great Protestant revolution of the 16th century and the fracturing of Christendom. Uh, and then I bring it into the modern age, if you will, with the time period of the Enlightenment when you have European intellectuals who begin to attack the church and religion in general uh, and create a secular society out of that. And then and I finish with a chapter on modernism and neo-paganism, which is the time period we're living in now, where you have modern the modernist heresy, which is you know uh, attempting to strip away the supernatural understanding of the faith. You see this rise of neo-paganism, where we have you know athe rise of atheism, of sa of Satanism, even of moral relativism, and all of these problems that we're dealing with in the modern age. And then the last chapter I, I uh, finish with a, a chapter on how should Catholics respond during a time of church crisis and how not to. So that's kind of a brief overview of the book. Wow, wow, that's uh, that's some red that's red meat Catholicism for for all you budding apologists out there. Uh, Steve, let me ask you a question. Uh, it, of of these nine epochs of church history, which one would you say was uh, caused the greatest turmoil in church history? It seems like a lot of them, uh, you know, had the church on the ropes, so to speak, using a you know boxing metaphor. But which one looked like it was going to, you know, deliver the knockout punch of all these nine historical vignettes? 
Yeah, well, you, you know, I mean, you could probably say that almost of any of these nine that I look at is why I highlight them, right? Because there's there's times of crisis throughout the church's history. And so these these nine are not the only times there have been problems, but these are the times where I thought caused the greatest problems, uh, but also led to the greatest reform, if you will, and the greatest revitalization renewal. But if I had to pick one, I would probably choose the 14th century crisis in the papacy of the Avignon papacy and the Great Western Schism. Uh, when you had for 70 years, the popes living in the south of France. So a Catholic could go their entire life, you know, from birth to death and never know that the pope and the bishop of Rome was actually living in Rome, was living instead in the south of France. And how scandalous that would be as a Catholic, just, you know, living during that time. And then once they get back, uh, you know, through the efforts of St. Catherine of Siena, then you have this horrible schism which erupts where, again, at one point you have three men early in the 15th century, three men claiming to be pope. Now, you know, there's this this period of time many people you know especially people who criticize the church like to say oh you catholics had three popes at one time well that's not entirely accurate right there was one validly elected pope throughout that entire crisis there were at one point two men claiming to be popes so they were technically anti-popes not the first time in church history we've had an anti-pope but if you put that together with what what had happened with the popes living in the south of france for 70 years then also the 14th century is a period of great turmoil in European history as a whole. It's the time of famine, of violence. This is also in the mid-century, the time of the Great uh, Death, the Black Death, the Great Plague. So half of Europe of Europe's population dies during this time as well. So this is a, and it, that really impacts the church greatly. So that 13th century is a is a or the 14th century rather is a really significantly. Mm you know, difficult times, so many things going on that, that really using your boxing metaphor had the church, you know, on the ropes and, and ready for a knockout punch, if you will. Um, but, you know, as Christ said, the gates of hell not, will not prevail against the church. And she came through that period, that, that century, uh, even stronger. Amen. Uh, Steve, for, for somebody who's just kind of really coming back to the faith, kind of a neophyte in the faith, but they want to get a grasp of church history. They want at least a good overview. You know, they don't want to go to school and take an academic course for a semester. Of all the books that you've written, which book would you recommend to the Catholic neophyte, the Catholic that's just coming back to their faith, but they do want a good bird's eye view of church history? Which one would you recommend that you've written? Yeah, I would definitely recommend my book called Timeless. It's just a timeless a history of the Catholic Church. It was a book that's published by Our Sunday Visitor. It came out a couple of years ago. It's, it is a one-volume narrative history of, of the 2,000 years of the Church's history. So uh, it's a bit, it's a bit uh, you know, lengthy in terms of page numbers. It's uh, you know, over 400 pages, if you will. But I, I devised that book in particular to be easily digested, if you will. So there's short, short sections uh, where I cover a particular topic or a particular person. So it's a very easy book to pick up, read a section or two, put down, and then pick up later, if you will. So no, you don't have to, you don't feel overwhelmed. I, at least I hope the reader doesn't trying to go through, you know, this, this kind of monotonous tome, if you will, I, I designed it that way. So it would be easy for people to pick it up and, and learn as they go and not feel overwhelmed. And by the way, Steve, I just, uh, you know, want to just commend you. You you look you work at one of the more, uh, most respected Catholic colleges in the country. Christendom College has a, you know, has a stellar reputation. And uh, so uh, the fact that uh, that you have anything to do with them, it speaks volumes about who you are as a Catholic. For those of you just tuning in, I'm talking to Professor Steve Weidenkopf. He's an author and a lecturer in church history at Christendom College, graduate school of theology. He's got a, he's got a ton of books. 
Uh, he's a defender of Holy Mother Church. But the new one that we're talking about here that I'm asking them questions about is called Darkness Has Not Overcome the Church. So if you're feeling depressed or down, you got the blues, this is the book you want to pick up because as we're going to get into the interview, he's going to show you that when when you think that the church is down and out, you know, when the church is, uh, uh, you know, getting pummeled against the ropes on the 15th round, the thriller from Manila, the church always comes back in the promises of Christ ring true. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church and they haven't and they won't. And a lot of people think, oh, no, the gates of hell are prevailing right now. Knock it off. Quit thinking like that. Steve is going to turn your frown upside down as I continue asking him questions about his new book. It's called Darkness Has Not Overcome the Church. Again, it's a new Catholic history book that reminds us that God that God brings good even out of major crisis. And what God does is he brings about a renaissance of saints. Don't go anywhere. We'll come right back and continue talking to Professor Steve about uh, church history. Stick around. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now, here's Terry and Jesse. If you're feeling a little bit down, you tuned into the right place because we got Professor Steve Weidenkamp right here. He's going to turn your frown upside down with historical church facts. Uh, he's going to basically reassure you that the gates of hell cannot, will not, cannot prevail against the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, Steve, got a question for you. Uh, by the way, in case uh, for those of you tuning in, I got Professor Stephen Weidenkamp. He's an author and a lecturer in the church history at Christendom College, graduate school of theology. He just wrote an incredible book called Darkness Has Not Overcome the Church. Uh, Professor, my question is, did Catholics in other eras of turmoil gone by, did they believe that the world was going to end? And also a second question, does St. Augustine believe in his time that the world was going to end? Yeah, Jesse, no, that's uh, not that I know of that there were any specific people who believe the world was going to end. I mean, there was there's some, you know, understanding that as they, uh, you know, as Europe approached the year a thousand Christendom, there were some, you know, millennial people that were concerned about the the change of society or a potential cataclysmic type of event but but overall no i mean there was no kind of hand-wringing that uh, the world is going to come to an end or or when there was you know a crisis in the church no one thought that uh you know this was this was the end that the antichrist was coming now and that kind of thing i mean there were always turmoils and always people talking about prophetic kinds of things or trying to interpret you know events in their own day with some kind of apocalyptic meaning um but but that doesn't mean that, you know, that A, the church taught that or B, uh, you know, that most Catholics believed that that was going to happen. And now St. Augustine in particular addressed that issue, right, with when he wrote his book, The City of God. Uh, he wrote the in, in uh, addressing the question that was raised by some pagans that were still living in the Roman Empire at the time, who blamed the, the sack of Rome in the year 410 by Alaric the Goth on the fact that the Roman Empire had embraced the, the church and embraced the faith. And, and these pagans were, were 
were advocating that, you know, when, when we worship the pagan gods, Rome never fell. And we didn't have this kind of horrible turmoil in the world. And St. Augustine wrote the city of God to say, in essence, that, you know, uh, look, it's not because of the church or the faith that Rome was sacked, right? We have to see historical events in the context of the great drama of sin and redemption that God has, play, has, has uh, you know, uh, brought to us, if you will, through salvation history, that, that the actions that we see in history are the actions of men and women, right, who are given free will by God. They can choose to do virtuous things. They can, do, they can choose to enter into vice uh, and do horrible things and evil things. And that's not, um, you know, because of God's kind of, you know, uh, deciding he doesn't want to care about us anymore or he's not interested in what's going on in human affairs. And we can't blame the church for these kinds of things. Um, but rather, we need to understand and see that history is, you know, uh, God is involved in human history, that he continues to be with the church. And he, as he promised, the gates of hell will, not, hell will not prevail against it. So no worldly events should lead us to the thought that, that somehow, you know, uh, God has abandoned us or that uh, the church is going to fall, if you will. Steve, uh, you kind of alluded to, but go deeper into it. Some of the decadent hierarchs that kind of sold out the faith uh, in times past for pleasure and power talk a lot, little bit about the hostile princes and the heresies or ideologies. And you already mentioned about again three people, uh, the uh, three people, uh, three popes at once. We knew there was one pope and two claimed to be pope. That menace that was menacing uh, Christendom. Uh, did Luther, in particular, himself? Did he witness a series of decadent hierarchs in the Middle Ages that were, again, they were selling out their faith for pleasure and power and women and money and stuff? Did Luther witness some of that? And was that some of what kind of, uh, uh, you know, raised his ire against the church? Or was it just simply theological arguments that he had? Or was he, did he just uh, suffer from scrupulosity or maybe all three? Yeah, you know, Jesse, a great question. I mean, in terms of Luther particularly, right? So the historical context in which he he lives, right? He, he was born at the end of the 15th century, uh, you know, lives till about the middle of the 16th century. And so during his early years of life, uh, you know, he's living during what historians like to refer to as the Renaissance papacy. So these are 10 popes that reigned from the middle of the 15th century into the early 16th century, beginning with Nicholas V and ending with Pope Leo X. Uh, and so these, again, were, as I mentioned earlier, these these were popes who really were more focused on being secular princes than on universal shepherds. And so they were much more concerned with worldly affairs, with the accumulation of wealth, uh, with politics and these kinds of things. Right. So, um, you know, they were, were not men who were not all of them were as immoral as, you know, as, as, as sometimes is claimed. Uh, perhaps the, the, the worst of them was uh, Rodrigo Borgia, uh, the, the Spanish pope. Who's, who took the papal name Alexander VI. And uh, we know for a fact that he definitively, you know, was immoral, lived in a moral lifestyle while he was Pope. He definitely had a young mistress uh, while he was Pope and engaged in, you know, that kind of activity. So, uh, you know, obviously providing scandal and, and inappropriate, um, you know, uh, living, uh, you know, during that period of time. And so, I mean, Luther is aware of that. He's aware of these, these recent history of, of the popes during his lifetime in his early age. Um, but, you know, what, what uh, they're, they're, the point, though, on that with Luther is that, 
the Pope, the church had seen, you know, bad popes before, if you will, or, or popes who have, who had lived immorally and not, not really lived up to their, their vocation. Right. Um, and, and yet the church continued, um, you know, all the corruption and, and abuses that were prevalent in the 15th and 16th century, which Luther was concerned about, frankly, sadly had been present before. Right. So abuses like absenteeism, where you have bishops not living in the diocese in which they are the bishop. Right. So we just talked about that with Avignon papacy, where you have the Bishop of Rome living in the south of France, still the Bishop of Rome, just not living there. That's called absenteeism. You know, we had the ecclesial abuse of, of simony, which is the buying and selling of church offices and spiritual things. In the Renaissance papacy, you had a little bit uh, a newer, if you will, abuse known as nep- nepotism, where popes, you know, their family, they're giving curial offices and, and church offices to members of their family to kind of keep the papacy and keep control of the church within their family, if you will. Uh, and, you know, and we see also the abuse of pluralism, which is one, more, one man being the bishop of more than one diocese, uh, which is a significant problem in Canada. Right? So all these things and corruption had had been present in the church before. So there's this, this uh, you know, common Protestant narrative that Luther engaged in his Protestant revolt because of the horrible situation of the church. Uh, and he was just really fed up with that and angry with it. So that's why he decided to revolt and reform the church. Um, and that that's, that's not really entirely accurate, frankly. I mean, he was concerned about some of the, the uh, customs that were present during his lifetime, but what he was really more interested in and concerned about and had issues with was certain, certain theological doctrines. And so really what, what he started was a theological revolution, and that theological revolution quickly turned into a political revolution based on what was going on in the, uh, the area of what is now modern-day Germany that he lived. Uh, and he got wrapped up in of that and secular princes took um, took advantage of that situation to revolt against the church and increase their own control and authority in their own areas and and frankly increase their own wealth as well to, to as they revolted against the church so it's a multifaceted multi-complex issue going on there but not as simple as as the common protestant narrative likes us, likes to to indicate did luther fall over the nun did he have his eyes on a nun well, later on, he did, you know, after he had um, had left the, the church, if you will, and stopped practicing his priesthood, he did marry a former nun, uh, Catherine Von Bora was her name. She, you know, he, she was one of several nuns that he helped to um, escape a convent, if you will. So he wrote a, a, a treatise uh, called, in 1525 called On Monastic Vows, in which he uh, railed against the church's teaching on celibacy, where he railed against religious orders, where he thought all of that was non-biblical and encouraged, uh, you know, monks and nuns to leave monasteries and convents, uh, you know, all throughout Christendom. And many did. And so he helped 10 nuns escape one particular convent. And one of them, Catherine von Bohr, he eventually later married. Many Catholics fall into the, in, in the temptation of being very cynical uh, or, or sometimes some Catholics fall into the opposite end, kind of Pollyannish, like, eh, nothing to see here, nothing wrong, you know. Have a great day. So what's the proper response? Because right now we see a lot of things in our country and in the church that are that pose a huge problem for uh, practicing Catholics. Uh, it, uh, we have we have heartburn, if you will. And so, again, we could become cynical and just, you know, head to the hills and say, I'm out of here and schismatic. Or we can have this Pollyannish passivism like, hey, give me another margarita. There's nothing wrong here. Let's just, you know, have a great day. What's the proper Catholic response to what's going on right now in our country and in the church? And both of them, again, 
Uh, we see Marxist and Marxist infiltration, uh, Masonic infiltration, and also uh, uh, homosexual LGBT. This whole ideology being pushed into the church and into our culture. What's the proper Catholic response? Well, first, Jesse, I want I want to say that you know a proper Catholic response is it's, it's of course fine to have another margarita. It's you know you can't just stop it at one necessarily. But <laughs> two margaritas. Uh, Catholics are not teetotalers, so you know, perfectly fine. In moderation, all things in moderation, but absolutely, another margarita is, is a proper response. But uh, no, you know, I mean, a proper response is is uh, as a, this is what I try to prevent or provide rather in the book, right? Is as I go through, and the reason why I selected these kind of nine crises that we, we've t- touched on is because the the historical pattern, when you know your church history and you see it, what happens from these dark times is that's not the end of the story, right? That's not the story. The crisis the turmoil that's not the story the rest of the story or the real story if you will is god bringing light from the darkness right that god bring it's it's because of the crisis and because of the dark times if you will and because of the problems the great renewal and reform and restoration and revitalization happen right so i didn't write my book simply just to say to catholics today yeah we've got problems but it was way worse before uh that's not that's not the the end that's not the real reason of my for my book right the, that's part partly the reason is that maybe lessen our anxiety and lessen our stress and realize that, that there were darker times before uh and we, we got through it and we'll get through the dark times today too but that's not really the end of it right that's not the that's not the full picture the, the full picture is the dark times bring reform. So when we're in the midst of a crisis, when we're in the midst of, of uh, you know, turmoil and problems, then we know, based on our historical experience, that there will be a greater reform coming or, or some form of revitalization in the future. Now, that doesn't mean... Hey, man, we got... Uh, I hear the music, doctor. Uh, hey, we're, we're on with Dr. Steve Weidenkamp. Stick around. Good stuff. He's giving us some good ammunition. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now, here's Terry and Jesse. Blue Collar Catholic Radio. We've got uh, Dr. Steve Weidenkamp, professor of Christendom College. And, and Dr., you were telling us right now, let me kind of uh, reset the question for those just tuning in right now. You've looked at the past nine vignettes of church history that were in turmoil. So in the book, it's not, you're just not telling us what went wrong. You're giving us a model to follow on how to deal with the trials that God has permitted in our own time. So what is that model you're teaching us in your book? Yeah. So you know, I'm trying, I try to illustrate that, that these Dark times, all right, these times of turmoil of problems, they lead to times of reform and renewal and restoration. And as right before we went to the break, I was it was gonna say that, you know, we don't we might not even live to see that, right? There were times during these crises that you had Catholics that would live their entire life just during the time of crisis and during the times of, of turmoil and never actually live to see the later reform or renewal, but it did happen. And so I think that gives us a sense of hope, right? It may give us a sense of frustration too, to a certain extent, but you know, we need to have a sense of hope and realize that, you know, we need to work for, uh, you know, that reform as much as we can um, and in the proper way. And that's why, 
ended the the book with a chapter on how to respond during uh, to the you know in a time of church crisis and how not to. And I prov provide this historical case study, if you will, of two different people. Uh, one most people have probably heard of the the uh, you know great Dominican tertiary Saint Catherine of Siena, one of the most beloved saints in all of church history, and then uh, contrast her with Savonarola, who most people probably haven't heard of. And Savonarola was a 15th century Florentine monk uh, who Dominican who was uh, who basically got himself wrapped up into deciding that he had the answer for how the church needed to be reformed. He was upset with with Alexander VI. We mentioned him earlier in the Renaissance papacy. He got himself wrapped up in the Florentine politics and he allowed pride uh, to cloud his vision uh, and uh, and his life and his his uh, you know living, if you will. And so he ended up getting condemned. Uh, he entered into schism. He embraced some heretical teachings as well. And ultimately, he was condemned, imprisoned, and then uh, put to death by the Florentine city government for his actions. Whereas St. Catherine of Siena remained in loving filial obedience to the church throughout the time of crisis that she lived. She was very direct in her criticism of the church and of bishops in the church and even the pope at times for their actions. Um, but did so, the criticisms she leveled were always done in a way of, of um, you know, virtue and of filial obedience, right, especially to uh, the teaching authority of the church. And, you know, and she always rooted her response in humility and in Christ, right? So her faith wasn't in the Pope or it wasn't in this bishop or, or human beings. Her faith was rooted in Jesus. And so she gives us the model to follow throughout all these difficult times, right? that we need to focus, first of all, on our own reform. We need to make sure that we're the best, uh, you know, Catholics, as you, if you will, that we can be, that we live a life of virtue, a life of prayer, a life of participation in the sacraments. Uh, and we worry first about the, you know, the, the plank in our own eye, then before we worry about the splinter in someone else's, right? Once we have got ourselves kind of, you know, as, as on the path of holiness and living that out, then we can respond and and call uh, you know others to do so as well. Uh, in again filial obedience, especially when we're doing you know we're criticizing the actions of those in the hierarchy. So it's not to say we can't criticize bishops or popes even for various you know things that they might say or do. Um, and sadly, there's been enough uh, you know examples of that in the recent age of various problems within the hierarchy, whether it be the clerical sexual abuse scandal or other forms of corruption, you know financial corruption and things in the church and and our day and age. Um, but we need to call those out with obedience or, or with uh, humility rather, and uh, and always rooting ourselves in Christ and not having our faith be, uh, if you will, challenged or, or, or you know, leave the church because of these scandals, right? Which is another problem that many people might enter into. And we just need to realize that God's in control and we just need to be as faithful servants of him as we possibly can. This is a quick question. Uh, have we had bad popes in the past? That There's been 267 popes in the Catholic Church. I had this conversation with Pat Madrid and Tim Staples, a kind of a three-way uh, conversation. And I think we came up with a list between all three of us of like 19 popes that were bad. And that's not bad. It was like, I think the ratio was like one out of 13. So uh, you're a historian. I'm asking you, have we had bad popes in the past? Yes or no? Uh, yeah, absolutely. We have. We've had popes who have not, uh, you know, have not lived virtuous and, and moral lives and haven't lived their office, you know, haven't lived in accordance with, with the office that we expect them to live. Right. That's very that is true. Uh, but just because there have been people who haven't, you know, uh, been the, the model of perfection or humility or saintly in, in the papal office doesn't mean that the papal office should be abolished or, or that it somehow invalidates the authority of the papal office. Yeah, correct. Because the office comes from Christ. 
Uh, and so it uh, it, it uh, exceeds the person that's there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steve, let me ask you a question. Uh, I, I talked to Professor Hahn. He said there was two points in history where he uh, d- discovered this to be the case. Have we had popes that have made uh, that have said things that were doctrinally incorrect in the past or who have tried to change church doctrine? Yeah, well, that's I mean, that's a so the real way to understand that, right, is that there have been times in the past when we've had popes who have have offered opinion on theological controversy or questions. And they got it wrong. They got it wrong and they weren't teaching that in a definitive way, which bound the faithful, which would then lead someone to say, oh, you know, the charisma of fallibility is somehow not operative in the church or Catholics have this false understanding of that or or it invalidates the church or what have you. Yeah, no, it's it's theological opinions uh, that they that they offered, but turned out, you know, to be wrong or incorrect. But those were their personal opinions, if you will, not any formal papal teaching. Got it. Uh, here's somebody that, uh, he's, he, he's an old church historian. I'm sure you know about him since you're a historian, Hillard Belloc. He says that, that modernism is the most dangerous heresy and attack on the Catholic church. Would you agree with that statement? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of Hilar Bellock, frankly, and uh, I quote him often in my works, and I, I like many of his uh, his previous books. And I think in his book, The Great Heresies, right, he had a chapter on the modern attack where he talks about modernism and its impact on 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 society. Now he's writing that book, you know, later on or earlier in the 20th century, so he's he's kind of looking forward before modernism really takes root and, and is seeped throughout. Uh, various seminaries and other issues in the church and in the world. And so, I mean, modernism at its core, right? It seeks to strip away the supernatural understanding of the faith. It, it, it seeks to try to explain supernatural things, miraculous things, right? Uh, with a, with a natural explanation. And, and so that's, that's obviously pernicious and it's heretical, but why it's pernicious is because what the ultimate goal of a modernist is, is to eradicate faith in essence, right? To strip faith away from people. And so when, if we begin to think that there are nothing more than just natural explanations for supernatural things, uh, if miracles can just be explained away, then that really, it's a watering down, if you will, of the faith. And it leads to some dangerous uh, consequences, things like an embracing of moral relativism, right? If, if everything is just kind of a natural explanation and nothing is revealed or nothing's from God, well, then morality is something that we can create too, right? We can decide what is right. We can decide what is wrong. There's no God-given objective morality. There is no arbiter, if you will, of goodness and evil. Uh, and we determine that, we as human beings. So we can redefine marriage. We can redefine our society. We can, you know, class, we can, we can ensure shrine and law, things that are inherently evil and criminal. Uh, and that is not a good foundation for a society um, moving into the future, frankly, as, as you know, previous historical uh, examples provide. Professor Stephen Weidenkopp, Christendom College. Uh, where can people get your book? Uh, the book is called Light from Darkness, Nine Times the Catholic Church Was in Turmoil. How can people get your book? So it's published by Catholic Answers Press. So best place to get it is from their website, which is shop.catholic.com. And it should also be available at Catholic bookstores uh, near you. Steve, I got one more question. I got about two minutes before we have to wrap it up and have to make some closing remarks. But today's the feast day of Father Miguel Pro. In two minutes, what can you tell us about this amazing Jesuit priest? 
Yeah, Blessed Miguel Pro is an amazing man who who missioned and ministered really to Catholics in Mexico during a time of great persecution uh, of the church, uh, you know, where the, the church was full on attacked by the secular humanistic government of Mexico. And Father Miguel was accused of a crime, which he obviously didn't commit. It was a false accusation. He was arrested. Uh, and then the state decided that they were going to execute him. Uh, and so they wanted to make a big show trial of this or a big show and display of his execution to demoralize the Mexican people who were still faithful to the church. And so they brought photographers and, and press and everything there to record his, his execution. And there's a famous picture of him with his outstretched arms right before he is executed by a firing squad. Last words, you know, Vivo Cristo Rey, uh, long live Christ the King, and he's killed. And so this picture was then, you know, uh, dispersed all throughout Mexico in an attempt to uh, demoralize the people. And instead, uh, you know, the government found that people wanted the picture, that they they utilized the picture and saw it as, as you know, the picture of martyrdom. And it became a source of, of you know, inspiration for them. And then the, the government had to actually ban the publication and distrib- distribution of that picture of Miguel Pro because it, it turned the tables on them, if you will. So God will never be outdone in, in uh, you know, irony, if you will. But Blessed Miguel Pro is a fantastic and wonderful and beautiful man and a great martyr and defender of the church and and I, I wish that he was more well known in in our uh, country and that his feast day was more widely celebrated uh, professor stephen Weidenkamp, thank you for coming on the terry and jesse show we'll have to do it again with you some of your other books uh what's the name of your book again and how can people get a hold of it Sure. It's a new book is Light from Darkness, Nine Times the Catholic Church Was in Turmoil and Came Out Stronger Than Before, available from Catholic Answers Press, shop.catholic.com. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for your service to Holy Mother Church. Uh, you're, uh, you're doing a yeoman's job of uh, defending Holy Mother Church and helping people understand the truth about the Catholic faith. God bless you. Have a happy Thanksgiving, you and your family, and we'll have you again real soon. Thank you. Thank you, Jesse. Appreciate it. God bless to you, and happy Thanksgiving. You got it. Well, you've been listening to uh, Professor Steve Weidenkamp from Christendom College, and his, uh, we're talking about his new book, Light from Darkness, Nine Times the Catholic Church Was in Turmoil and Came Out Stronger Than Before. You can get that book from Catholic Answers Press. So what do I have to tell you? Well, have a happy Holy Thanksgiving. Uh, that's the first thing I want to say from uh, the Terry and Jesse show. Also, remember as Catholics, let's keep things in perspective. Satan's kingdom has an expiration date. He's a loser. His days are numbered. And the kingdom of Christ will last forever. Live in a state of grace. Pray your rosary every day. Read your Bible every day. And evangelize. Evangelize or fossilize. God bless you. Keep the faith. See you tomorrow. Same Christ time, same Christ channel.